We've assembled tonight for fellowship with God and His Word, according to what He has taught us of Himself through the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles, the prophets of the New Testament, and that relationship that we enjoy through the cross of Jesus Christ um, is something that we're going to feast on, we're going to feed on tonight, we're going to continue to learn of Him and grow. To grow presupposes having life. You don't want to, um, to not be alive and grow. That would be a, a monstrosity. Um, it really doesn't happen. Growth is something that, uh, that requires life. And, but um, you also don't want to be alive and not grow. That's another monstrosity. A lot of believers are stunted in their growth. Fill up my cup, Lord. Oh, that's enough. Um, and, um, and so you end up with a lot of people long in the tooth in the, in the Word, in the Lord, I should say in the Lord. They've been believers for a long time, but not past square one in their Christian spiritual growth. And um, that's not the way. <clears throat> As we can start tonight, I want to say that the way to have the life, it's really important to understand this. It's not the same way that you grow. There's a relationship between how you get the life and how you grow, but it's not the exact same situation. In other words, we're declared firstborn sons, grown, adopted adult heirs of God when we first trust in Christ. But the requirement is that as babes in Christ, we grow up into that position, into that estate that is ours by faith. The most important question ever asked, I believe, is Acts chapter 20, verse 30. The most important question ever asked. A Roman citizen in Philippi said to the apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas. The most important question ever asked had the simplest answer, and Paul did not start on a litany of things that he had to do. He didn't mention any water, that he had to be baptized. He didn't mention any Eucharist, that he had to take elements. Uh, There were no rituals to go through. We do take the, the communion. That is part of our Christian walk. But the question of how do I get the life is the same question as how can I be as good as God? How can I be good enough to deal with my sin? How can I atone for the sins that I've committed? How can I get out of this pattern of sin that separates me from God? How can I have the righteousness that God requires? How can I be good enough? And, or how can I get out of God's judgment for sin? How can I get out of the flames of hell? How can I get back where I'm no longer separated from God, but be united to him? How, how can I be restored from the estate into which we're born? These are the really the implications of what must I do to be saved? And that most important question by the Philippian jailer got the simplest possible response. The way that you get the life is that you can't do anything. You can't. It's easier, Jesus says, for the rich man, or for a rich man, it's easier for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit eternal life or to get into the kingdom, whichever place that's quoted by the Lord Jesus, um, of the Lord Jesus. It's impossible, in other words. There's no buying your way in. There's nothing you can do. The wealthiest person you can think of, he doesn't have a shot at all. He can't even get in with his wealth. What is almost never uh, excluded, money will buy you anything, not this. So how do you do it? The Lord Jesus 
had the Apostle Paul and Silas, empowered by the Holy Spirit, ready to say exactly what you must do, which is not you doing anything, any work. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. Acts 16.31. This is the action one must take that Jesus once said, these are the works uh, that inherit eternal life, to believe. Trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior is the answer because Jesus did the work that God requires. Jesus paid the sin debt that you can't pay. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life so that he could take your sins on himself and not have any sins of his own. This is the gospel. What you have to do with the words of life is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And it's tragic how Christian religion, without reference to the Bible, has missed this so often and said, well, you've got to do these seven things. You've got to do this thing over here and this thing, take this step and this step. And by the way, you have to get it from us. You know, come to the church, we'll dispense the grace to you. And that's not what the scriptures say. God doesn't have grandchildren, and he doesn't have a Byzantine or other system of um, complicated Rube Goldberg steps you have to go through. The deal is that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, and what are you doing with him? What do you do with that message? And it's simple childlike faith. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I am trusting in him, the one who made me, and the one who holds all things together by his powerful word, who became one of us at Christmas, as we say. He, died, he was born in, the, in, the, in a human body, as a human being, I should say, with true humanity. And yet being God, the creator from eternity past, the son of God, who came to die in our place. This is the gospel. And this is the beginning of your relationship with God. And believers, fellowship with God is your birthright. Having been born again, you are called to walk with him, to walk worthy of your calling, to walk in a life of righteousness or walking in the light as God himself is in the light. And I always offer you a moment of silent prayer if you need to bring anything as a believer to God that is between you and him in terms of your fellowship. It does no good to lie about the situation if there's personal sin it certainly curses your life to persist in personal sin. The solution to mental attitude, sins of resentment, bitterness, jealousy, anger, spite, malice, all of these things that no one can see but God sees. The solution is to name them to God, to forsake them and receive the forgiveness that God through Christ's work on the cross extends for fellowship with him. Not to reestablish relationship, but to enjoy it in fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we pause to thank you for your grace to us, for the privilege of knowing you through the work of Jesus Christ, the free grace gift of eternal life because of what Jesus did for us. We thank you for his magnificent sacrifice, which is a horrific, uh, torturous thing he had to endure, screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of this horror for his uh, suffering for us, we have the bliss, the joy of forgiveness of our sins, fellowship with you because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Father, we forsake this because we're foolish, because we don't know what's good for us, because we get our eyes on the wrong things. We won't look to you with the eyes of faith and recall what, you, what you've told us, what you expect, what you've promised. 
Tonight, Father, strengthen our faith as we consider who you are, what you want for us, what you're really like as you relate to us. Father, teach us to draw near to you because you promised if we would that you would draw near to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Isaiah 30, and last time we were looking intently at verse 15, Isaiah 30, 15. I just want to grab that um, and think about God's offer and Israel's failed response. Isaiah 30, 15 is one of these great verses, and uh, another one like it is coming, let's see, in verse uh, 18, a couple of really awesome places where God lyrically is saying, this is simple. It's, it's so simple. It's a personal relationship that I'm asking for with you. The obstacle to us is the way we relate to people is we can see them, we can hear them, we can hug them, and uh, um, the other senses. And, uh, and you can't do that with God. Not yet. Not with Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father. And so it's an obstacle for us that we walk by faith and not by sight. But that's God's agenda. That's the way it is designed. He's designed this in the time in which we live. We have to relate to him through what he said. And as we get started on this, I want to say, if we're not in the word, we really have no hope of that cultivated walk with him because you don't have anything to relate to him about. And I say that because a lot of times we'll try to take our personal life experiences and use that as the food to, to feed our spiritual life. Like, I know God is such and such because of what I'm experiencing. But the world is trying to do this, and they're failing because you don't really get to know God in any kind of direct, um, explicit way, authoritative way by your experiences. You really don't. You get to know him by what he said about himself, and then that equips you to read your experiences in light of what he said. And, then, and that's faith. So as I'm hurting, I'm not learning that God likes to make me suffer. I'm learning that God wants me to trust him and he can show up and make me powerful to manage this, the suffering. That's what God's word will do for you through the circumstances, as we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. See, if you, if you take what isn't food and you eat it and you try to use that for energy, I mean, it may be poison, you know. Something that isn't food, actual grease, it's got a purpose, but it isn't food. And if you try to use it for something that it's not for, your experiences aren't your spiritual food. The Word of God is your spiritual food. And as you trust Him and He shows up and He provides and He stabilizes you, that, that, those kinds of consequential experiences as a result of your taking in His Word and trusting Him, this is your food. So I just challenge you that there is no real spiritual growth. There is no spiritual life without a heavy diet in God's word. And it's progressive, the requirements. And it's superfood. It's superfood for people that have been told to run the race that's been set before them in Hebrews 12. All right, in Isaiah 3, 30, 15, my Bible in English, the American Standard says, For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you'll be saved. And quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. And we looked really closely at this last time, and this is my translation of that Hebrew uh, poetic statement. For thus says the, the Adonai, the, the master, who is Yahweh, the, the sacred name of God. It's also translated as Jehovah in the King James Bible. Very often it's never was Jehovah. That's not a name uh, that God actually ever used. It's really important to know this. Jehovah is the Hebrew letters yod heh vav heh with the with the vowel points for Adonai under it so that the rabbis would make sure, the masters would make sure that no 
um, no Gentiles pronounce a name that they Jewish, the Jews never say. So they never say Yahweh. And so when you say Jehovah, you're making sure that you never say <laughs> this name. That's what Jehovah is. And, um, and that's one of the, that's a very important piece of, uh, of data for those of you that are worried about which English translation you use. The Bible is in Greek and Hebrew. And, and this is the sacred name. So the first thing he says, he calls himself the master. Thus says the ma- he said this, the master said this, and his name, his personal name, as he revealed in the Old Testament, is, is based on the Hebrew word for existence, hayah. Hey, yod, hey is the Hebrew word for existence. But there's something about this name that is, seem, seems to be based on it. And we think that because when he says um, Yahweh in Exodus 3 in the burning bush, he says, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. That's who I am. I'm the one who is. See, when God, and, and I really, I bring this out every once in a while. This is something to really get to know about who God is. He's the being who exists. And there's no cause. There's no other thing you can say besides just that's the way it is. We exist, and you have to really, to tell the truth, the whole truth, you have to say, we exist because God made us. We exist because God did something. But God exists there's no cause. There's no antecedent situation. And um, either, and this is, some of us have been talking about the cosmological argument or the, uh, the reason uh, from, from creation that, that we believe the, the evidence for God's existence within the reasoning from creation. Either you have an eternal pre-existing matter, material, or you have to have an eternally pre-existing person who made it. And one of those to me is way more intellectually satisfying uh, than the other. I hope you understand. But this is the one who is. Uh, is. He is and there is no other uh, who makes him. The Lord, often translated L-O-R-D, um, the Master Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, Kadosh Yisrael. And um, this is one of the long form names. If you want to say the royal title of somebody, you give all their titles. So this is, this is several of the ways that you could call uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For thus says the Master. All right, this is what he said. In a returning, we said that's the word shuvah, based on the word shuv, to turn, to return. In a returning, and it means to God. Israel has departed from God. They need to return to God. And you could say, well, they haven't, returned. they haven't departed. They're still in the land. No, in their hearts, they've turned from God. They're worshiping idols. They're following the world around them. Everybody knows that the sun is the biggest thing we can see. And everybody, S-U-N. And everybody knows that as it makes its transit across the sky, somehow it's responsible for the fertility of our crops and therefore our lives and even our own fertility. And so it's not very hard to conceive of a story that got told about the sun, S-U-N, as Baal, as the Lord or Baal is the Hebrew word, another word, Hebrew word for Lord. And Baal is the sun. He transits the sky. And, and of course, that's what people worship. Everybody knows this. And if you get it right, then you get fertility. You get, if, you get, if you get the, the Baal worship correct, correct with your uh, child sacrifices, then we can have more children be born and, and God will bring fertility to the crops. And uh, it just makes sense. And everybody wants to do this anyway because it's the phallic cult and everyone is, um, is driven by uh, illicit sinful uh, sexual lust. And so it just fits and it's a, good, it's a good method. And that's what everybody knows in their day. And the thing is, God had said, no, this isn't the way. And he told them. And he showed up and he delivered them. 
And Moses said, okay, Lord, let me see you. And the Lord said, if, I, if you see me, you're going to die. I'll, let you, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and you see part of me. You see, as it were, the back as I walk past. But you're not going to be able to take the whole vision of me, the whole perspective of my glory. And this is our problem is we can't see him. But, um, but this is the people that have rejected God in their hearts despite having his revelation. As we said last time, when you're sitting in the map, you know, where one inch is one inch, it's really hard to see where you are. You don't have any perspective. You zoom out and see the big picture like, oh, well, we're, way off, we're way off track. And that's what we're seeing. And so we don't want to be callous and foolish to say what idiots that they were. They were just following the world around them because Satan has deceived the nations. And so they were following in the footsteps of basically the rank and file of the human race. But, but God told them in a returning to God and calm, you'll be saved. Calm, a, a rare word, fairly rare word in Hebrew for not being anxious, not being in distress, not being emotionally compromised, but being stabilized. God's salvation for them is in the cleft of the rock, in refuge with him. And so they don't need to be uh, afraid. They don't need to be pushing uh, shock from their fear so that the adrenal, the adrenal response is overdriven and they're ineffective and incapable. They're not called, we are not called to spaz. That's one way to summarize it. The Christian life is not a life of anxiety. It's a life of rest in God and his promises. And that's one of the things that kind of comes out of this verse. The parallel thought that Isaiah echoes what God said. He says, in quiet and confidence, that word confidence, batak, which is from batak to take refuge in or to rely upon, to, to found yourself on, the stabilization that you get from resting yourself, your weight, your, your need on the rock of God's provision this is in this word confidence or, uh, or a taking of refuge in God. So on the outside of this, you have the return to God and confidence in God. On the inside, and this is in the Hebrew order, you have calm and quiet. Now I've told you before, I'll tell you many times, Hebrew poetry rhymes in thought, not in um, sounds usually. Uh, in verse 18, we get some alliteration that sounds similar. And it's very lyric, lyrical the way Isaiah does uh, the little saying in verse 18. But here, it's not rhyming in sound so much as in thought. And I want you to notice on the outside, what you need to do with God. You need to return to him. You need to trust in him. Israel, that's what you should do. You should return to God. You should trust in him. And these are parallel thoughts. These thoughts are, uh, are synonymous. And the, uh, the inner point is that there should be a stability that arises from that. Don't you want to be stable in the crisis? Don't you want to be able to weather whatever the storm is? In, in Isaiah's day, the nation was under divine discipline as prophesied in Leviticus chapter 26 for their idolatry. God said, we're going to enter this covenant. We're going to do this thing at Mount Sinai and, and I'll be your God. You'll be my people and you obey me and, and do what I require and you'll be blessed and you go into idolatry and disobey me, you'll be cursed. And that was the arrangement God made with national Israel, Mount Sinai, and their theocratic government. That was the deal. That was the law. And so they're under military pressure from the Assyrians because they violated the deal. They violated the, the covenant, the, that uh, bilateral <clears throat> uh, conditional covenant. And, 
And so they're facing the consequences of that, but still God is saying, this is what I want. I want you to be stable. I want you to be calm. Because you've returned to me, because you've taken your, your refuge, your confidence in me. And in this confidence, you'll be strong. He says, you'll be saved, you'll be strong. Those are parallel thoughts. It's very tight the way the Hebrew poetry rhymes here in thought. So as we meditate on this thought together, I want, I want you to want that portrait of fellowship with God, which is stabilized because you're trusting him. That's what the effect of our faith should be, is that we're stable, that we're strong, and that through the crisis, as we trust in God, whatever the crisis may be, we're, we're saved. The tragedy is their response was they were not willing. And, um, and notice that God is holding Israel volitionally responsible. He's saying, you did not choose you made a bad choice. He holds us responsible for our choices. And it's really important to, get, to gather that. And um, he's telling them this. And so they'll know. And, and I just, so what we talked about before is the battle drill one. I call it battle drill one. In battle drill one, the first battle drill in military affairs in, in our army, the first battle drill is react to direct fire. When someone's shooting at you. You're hearing the pop of bullets overhead. And as they pass by you, I guess, they're breaking the sound barrier in front. And I think that's why they pop as they go over. But anyway, it's, it's what they say when someone uh, experiences direct fire. What do you do when you're in, under direct fire? And the first thing you're supposed to do is return fire. And the second thing you're supposed to do is seek concealment and cover. Cover and concealment. Get some dirt or rock or wood between you or metal if you're a tanker, get, some, get something that's going to stop bullets between you and the person shooting bullets at you. But the first thing you do is not duck. The first thing you do is shoot back. That's, that's our military doctrine. And there's a reason why. Because when you start shooting at them, they tend to put their head down. It gives you time to duck and, and, and cover and find concealment. And so that's an illustration. When Satan's flaming arrows are coming at you, when life's challenges are coming to you and you are compromised, you need to be calm and stable because you're resting your faith in God and his provision and his promises. And I just, this is something we should always be ready with. So I call this a spiritual battle drill. The five R's is my way of thinking of uh, something that can easily be remembered. There are five R's. And the first one is react and redirect. It's two R's, but it's really the first one. React. How do you react? Well, how do, you, how do we return fire? Well, we're not going to return fire at the devil or something. We are going to lift the shield of faith. We're going to grab a promise. And, it, and a promise is something that you have memorized, so it's muscle memory. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's gracious functions toward me never cease. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Um, um, don't worry for anything, but in all things, through your prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be known unto the Lord, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You want to have some promises that you can grab hold of, and it's just, it's just an emergency uh, ripcord. It's just for you, for you to be able to, to get some stability in the crisis. Maybe you've never been in the kind of crisis that requires you to completely disengage from how you feel 
and start thinking, but that's what this is supposed to do, is immediately, this is too heavy. I don't know what to do about it. I'm compromised. I'm afraid. I am, I am, I am in desperation. Grab a promise of God because God has given us a lot of them. Now, when we talk about promises, I want you to remember as you go looking through the scriptures, through promises, you grab a, a book of God's promises and, and might see various promises in scripture. Watch the language because most of the time, God's promises are following a command. Casting all your cares on him for he cares for you follows, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So he promotes you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him. Usually, a promise is following a command. It's important to notice the context when you get your promises, but you grab hold of a promise and claim it. What do I mean by claim it? I mean, I say it and I say, I'm trusting this promise that God has given me. I'm trusting in God. Father, I'm trusting you. I'll say it in prayer. But you name this as yours. I'm, I'm trusting you on this issue that you said you're working all things together for good. Now, be careful because I struggle with this. Maybe it'll be a problem for you too. When I'm in that crisis and I need to grab hold of the ripcord and I say a promise, sometimes I don't feel like uh, the, bringing this, these two things together. I mean, most of the time, I don't feel like it. And that, that's irrelevant to the process because it doesn't matter how you feel as much as what you believe and what you choose to do. Feeling matters, but it doesn't matter as much as what you believe and what you choose to do. And um, your feelings can get you in trouble, but the thoughts of God never will get us in trouble. And there's a really tight connection between your sinful nature and your feelings. I didn't say all your feelings are sinful, but I said a lot of your sins are feelings. <laughs> So that just has to be a secondary consideration. I don't feel like it. God, I, I'll even incorporate that in my prayers. I don't feel like saying this right now, but I'm choosing to trust you. It's a choice. Second, in the trusting God and the promise, I'm intentionally considering God my refuge. I'm seeking him. I'm returning to him. I'm looking for him to provide that cover and concealment. Only in God. You're never going to find it anywhere else. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we lift the shield of faith. The shield of faith extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's what we're kind of learning to do in a step-by-step -step thought process here. But, but this is the time, this is the kind of stuff where you, you really don't want to think. And this helps you do the thing that you don't want to do. When the pump has is, uh, is got air in the line, it has to be primed. You turn on a pump and there's no, the, the air's in the line, you're not going to get a, a vacuum. It's not going to work. You got to prime that pump and then it works again. And that's where you'll find yourself sometimes out of gas, no, no, no fuel in the line, and you're going to have to prime it. And this, this kind of helps do that. So we react to the, to the crisis. We seek refuge in God as we're considering ourselves. And I think, imagine this, think of, think of this, like I am seeking God's care. Have y'all seen the video of the, um, of the shepherd in Russia? It's a Russian video. It's a, it's a viral thing. Everybody's seen it. I should show it to you, but... Let me describe it. <clears throat> There's this teenager pulling um, a, a lamb out of this crevice on the side of a road that runs all the way down the side of this road. It's this really tight crevice. And he's pulling this lamb out and he's got like a, a strap or something and he pulls it. You, I feel like the lamb is going to dislocate its little leg and, and break it off or something. But, you know, the, the, he pulls it in the lamb. He successfully gets it out. And it looks like a somewhat painful process to get the lamb out. And he's out. And I'm like, oh, good. And if you hear it in, in, um, in the original, he says, Molodiets is like, that means good job in Russian. And then, and then the lamb t takes like two springs, like spring, spring, and then jumps right back into the ditch. And, and that's 
that, <laughs> that's not what we're going for, but why is he doing that? Why is he running back to his, because he's afraid, because he's, 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 not, he's not running back to his shepherd, because he's, he's and, and so you want to take refuge in God and nowhere else, and so that's why number two is refuge. That's batach. Number three is the reflect step, and that is instead of saying think, I've said reflect because it starts with an R, and I can remember it if, if all five of these start with R, right? Reflect means I'm, gonna, I'm in the refuge. I can, I can do what's necessary now. So I return fire and my weapon jammed, or um, I had, you know, for whatever reason, the magazine fell out or something. I need to do a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of reconnection, recalibration. I sent off some rounds downrange when I initially returned fire, but I didn't, I didn't aim very well. I didn't know where the muzzle flashes were. I didn't really know much about what I was dealing with. I just returned fire. That's react. But now don't leave it there. You've got to do the next thing, which is think through what's going on. Why does this bother me? What is the problem I'm actually facing? Is the fire coming from over there or is it coming from over there? Is it a machine gun or is it, is it a kid with a 22? What's, what is happening? assess the problem and think it through. And sometimes you want to, I mean, always I think you want to do these things in prayer, but what's the nature of this? Why am I afraid? What am I afraid of losing is a really important question to ask yourself when you're afraid. What am I afraid of losing? It may be your life. You may be afraid that you're gonna, this is going to kill you, right? That we're talking about a major crisis. You may be afraid of losing a loved one. The greatest fears in life are life and death fears. What are you afraid of losing? And what do you do about that? We need heavy, heavy artillery to deal with the loss of life. We need like the resurrection as a thought process to deal with that. And that's really where it goes. But what are you afraid of? Why are you upset? Think it through. And you're in the refuge. You're, you're under God's cover. You're in, under the everlasting, in, in, in the arms of God, as it were, underneath the everlasting arms. So you do some reflection. The fourth is to relate. Now relate, it means that you put that problem that you thought through in step three, you put it in perspective what, with what else you know. I, I like to put it, the problem right here. You can explain to someone if you ever want to break it down. For, the problem is right here. I mean, excuse me, the problem is right here and it's this big. And it doesn't change how big it is, but I changed my orientation to it. I changed where I'm standing with respect to it. In fact, that problem um, stays the same size and my perspective goes infinite. I start thinking of God, his eternal plan, his eternal purpose. I start thinking of what else I know besides this problem. What we'll do when we're compromised, when we're worried, when we're afraid, is the problem we're facing, the hardship that we're looking at, the hardest thing we've ever dealt with in our lives. Some of you are headed toward that. We're all headed toward that in a sense. But the big problem that we're looking at will become so big to us that we pretend like we don't know anything else but that problem. It's all we can think about. And what this step is supposed to do is say, wait a second, what else do you know? What do you know about God? What do you know about his promises toward you in the big picture? What is the rationale he's given you for your destiny? Is this as good as it gets? Oh, good, I'm saved. Well, thank you, Lord, for the back pain or whatever the trouble is or, or the hardships that we're going through. Is this as good as, no, no. This is this present darkness. This is the suffering phase of life where we take the hits on the chin for God's sake and the power of his spirit because of the glory that's coming. So no, no, there's a whole lot of thinking you can do about, for example, God's attributes. Do you relate your problem that's 
really big and it's really right there and it's a really big problem. Do you relate God's sovereignty to that problem? Is, is this bigger than God's control of the universe? Is it bigger than his righteousness and his justice, which is the moral basis for his governing of the universe? Is it bigger than his infinite love? Is it bigger than eternal life that he's given to you? You see, you start thinking through the attributes of God and if you don't have a list of the attributes of God, well, you need a list. I like to say 10 things about God. He's sovereign, righteous, justice, love, eternal life, immutability, veracity, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. I, I do the 10 attributes of God that are that doesn't exhaust all that we know about God, but those infinite qualities that I just described will help you. I'm dealing with people lying about me, but I've got the God of truth. That's veracity. He always tells the truth. That's really great when someone's lying about you. God knows the truth. He said that, that we can know the truth. The truth will set us free. The lie, that's what humans and and and. God's enemy can do about me. Satan's a slander, a liar. He's a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. That's not, that's not my problem because God is the God of truth and I know the truth, that kind of thing. It's really helpful to think through the attributes of God with respect to your problem. But you're not gonna do that in the return fire phase. You're gonna say God's sovereign and it's funny when someone comes alongside you when you're, when you're struggling, like especially if you're just starting to return fire. We're just starting to try to grab a promise and you're kind of back on your, on your you know, I'm not, I'm not good yet. I'm not in a strong place yet. And they come be bopping the lines like God's in control. See you later. And it, it, that's not helpful. I know people that think that if you're a maturing Christian then things aren't supposed to hurt. Pain is pain. We're not learning how to not feel pain. We're learning how to deal with it. And it's going to be there. This is, oh, that's the other thing is you're in pain while this is all going on. So you grab God's attributes, you grab his word about your eternal destiny, you compare it to the problem. Have you got the inheritance rationale down? Everybody good on the inheritance rationale? Do you know what I'm talking about? The way to think about your inheritance as a believer? Okay, let's think about this. In Hebrews chapter one, Jesus is called the heir of something. Do you remember what it says about Jesus? He's the heir of all things. Does that include your car? In a silly way, yes. He's the one who inherits or owns everything. And it's partly true because he made it all. It's also partly true because he's the victor, and to the victor go the spoils. And so he's the heir of all things. Everybody good on Jesus owning everything? Okay. So this is the part that's hard for us to accept. I can believe in Jesus, the one who went to the cross, the only celebrity. I can deal with him being the heir of all things. But what I struggle with is in Romans 8, verse 16. You know what it says about you? It says you are heirs of God. We are the sons of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs or fellow heirs having in common inheritance with Christ if we suffer with him so we be glorified together with him. Romans 8. Now, if you've got a cut, a share, a fellowship in the inheritance of Jesus. I'm just borrowing from Hebrews chapter one again. What, what does that mean? What do you have to inherit? All things with Christ. Do you really need to be, do I need to be worried about anything, anything? See, that's the, that's the inheritance rationale. And um, it goes really well. It pairs nicely with Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and all these necessities, all these things you need will be added to you. All right. How do the attributes of God and your eternal destiny compare to the problem? I, I'm going to inherit all things with Christ. 
So this financial thing that has me, you know, standing on the, on the bridge with Jimmy Stewart, the inheritance rationale helps me with this. Of course, you're not going to stand on the bridge with Jimmy Stewart because you grabbed a promise from God's word that applies to you. You trusted in God about it. You sought refuge in God and you were stabilized a little bit to think about what the problem is. And now you've related the problem to your eternal inheritance and God's attributes. And so you're not going to go stand on the bridge with Jimmy Stewart. Um, but we will watch It's a Wonderful Life at some point this season. And then the fifth step is the obvious conclusion. You don't really have to, we may not have to be told this if we've gone through the four things here and related our problem to God's eternal promises and, and the big picture inheritance. We are commanded to rejoice even in suffering. And we don't rejoice because of the suffering, we rejoice in spite of it um, because of God's provision. So this is, a really important process that we should be, be, be thinking through um, all the time. And it summarizes a whole lot of uh, really the New Testament. But the more you learn, it also gives you kind of a skeleton, uh, if you will, to hang what you know or what you're going to learn going forward about God. Um, it gives you something to think about. So you put some meat on these bones um, of what you know of God, of how you will relate His Word and His promises to your problems and um, really helps, I think, to think it through. So um, if that blesses you, if that strengthens you, if that equips you to, to weather whatever storms are coming in your life, um, then uh, I praise God for that. And um, I um, am going to weep when you weep, and I'm going to rejoice when you rejoice, and we're going to rejoice even when we're suffering, even when it hurts. All right, in Isaiah chapter uh, 30, this is where we find ourselves in the big picture the um, the six woes of uh, chapters 28 through 33, as we said. We're in chapter 30, woe to the rebellious children who ex execute a plan that's not God's. And then as we keep looking um, in Isaiah chapter th 30 itself, this kind of further zooms in. We're in this portion here that's kind of the, it's kind of the, the focus of chapter 30, where we're looking at um, Israel's rejection, the, the Judah's rejection of God's word, and there's a consequence to it. That's the verse 15, I offered, but you rejected it. But then God is still going to bless Israel in the future. There's still going to be, even though Israel in Isaiah's generation is going to fail, God is going to bless in the future. And there is, um, there's a couple of challenges to us. We want to ask in 18 through 26, when? When are you going to bless national Israel in the future? And in the near future of Isaiah's day, when he's writing this, Hezekiah the king is going to lead a national repentance, and um, you're going to have the events of chapters um, 36 and 37, where 185,000 Assyrians are destroyed by uh, the angel of the Lord in one night. And, uh, and the invasion is stopped, and uh, Judah is saved. Now, they conquered the entire southern kingdom of Judah, all the cities except for Jerusalem. And it was, it was on the outskirts of Jerusalem that this took place. And um, it's a very interesting thing. But that's the near-term restoration. But that, that event doesn't gather all that is described of national Israel. And this is, uh, this is really important in the time in which we live. The more I talk to fellow believers in Christ about current events, the more I'm detecting confusion about what we're looking at, what, what we're facing. And that, too, that is to be expected. We should expect confusion and misunderstanding because of misinformation. 
The reason you should expect misinformation is because Satan is primarily a communicator. His primary uh, approach, if you watch Genesis 3 through the Revelation 20, his primary uh, method of uh, modus operandi is to communicate, but he communicates um, what may be largely truth with mixed in some error, and the error is the poison pill that sort of kills you. And so the world we live in since Genesis 3 is filled with misinformation. It's, and it does no good to hire people that are media experts or something to be the panel that'll tell you where there's been a misinformation because the misinformation police are often guilty of misinformation. That's their job is to misinform about what's been misinformed. And, um, and we're all pulling our hair out saying, how can I get some honest answers? So I'm not surprised that Christians are confused about, for example, God's program for future national Israel. I'm not surprised that anti-Semitism, and I don't mean disagreeing with national policies of the Israeli state. I mean actual animus against the genetic offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that says things like, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I'm talking about anti-Semitism that Revelation 12 wants to kill all the Jews that is surrounding that little Israeli state by all their neighbors. They all, it's like the one unifying thing in the Muslim world to kill all the Jews. Um, I'm, I'm, it's not surprising that you're seeing this crop up. And I just want to say, the Bible is full of prophecy about a glorious, eternal, national, believing, genetic Israel, a resurrected, believing Jewish people. It also says that there is trouble and a veil over their hearts, and a rejection of God. And Paul says their, their uh, destruction has come upon them to the uttermost in 1 Thessalonians. It's a complicated topic. But I just want you to understand, the future for national, genetic, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, in belief, is glorious. And it's a matter of settled promises, and if it doesn't happen as God describes I think we have real problems with the rest of what he says. Now, the tendency to reject or hate Israel, to hate the, the genetic offspring of I keep saying genetic because I know that most people who are Jewish are not believers in Christ today. But I also believe that there's coming a time when they will, this group of people, it'll maybe it, whenever this happens in the future, maybe these people's grandkids today, they are going to look on him whom they pierced, and they're going to trust him. This is going to come after a worldwide, including Jewish embrace of a man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. They're going to see this world ruler, this Gentile world ruler, and they're going to worship him as a god. And that's, that's on the agenda too. And it isn't just the Jews they are going to do this. The, the nations are going to do this as well. But I'm just saying, when you see in the Scriptures uh, inevitable future national blessings to national Israel. Okay, this is why we say things like we totally reject anti-Semitism and we don't want to mince words about this. What we saw on October 7th was um, hailed and heralded throughout the Muslim street, throughout the world because Jews were murdered, because Jews were slaughtered. Genetic, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, offspring, these cousins, these Arabs were slaughtered and, and the people are dancing in the streets about it. Why is that? And I'll tell you why. It is not because they're in the land. It's not because they're in the land. It's not because of the, the 
the international law that's, uh, that's happened that has established them back in their land in 1948. It's not because, um, because Jordan set up as the Arab state in the land by the, the powers that were back then. And, uh, and so that was going to be the Arab part, and then there's going to be the Israeli part. All that, it's not, that's not the reason. The reason why there is a Hitler rise where his, do you know what Mein Kampf meant? Do you know what Hitler was saying in Mein Kampf? It's his struggle, but do you know what his struggle was? His struggle wasn't the Jews have me down. That's not, as I understand it, that's not what he meant by saying he had a struggle. Mein Kampf, my struggle is that I don't want to admit what is plainly, manifestly evident that the problem is the Jews. I'm struggling in myself that we just have to blame the Jews. It's a subtle thing he was saying. And, uh, and we, after all, it's moral. We just have to go ahead and say this. We just have to kill them all. So the reason this is a problem is not because they're in the land. The reason this is a problem before they got back to the land and has been for 2,000 years is because in Revelation 12, Satan wants to kill them. The heart and origin of the desire to kill all the Jews, or as I call it, anti-Semitism. That's what I mean by anti-Semitism, the desire to kill all the Jews. That comes from Satan. It is the dragon that comes out of the sea, and it's been his program from before Jesus was born. And it's his program all the way through to, to the end of the tribulation. That's the program. Even when the peace treaty happens with the Antichrist and the many, that establishes the beginning of the tribulation period, the time of what the Bible calls Jacob's trouble, that last seven years. So I just, it's very important to understand. I want to make one thesis about this as we talk about future glory, glorious, glorified, believing national genetic Israel with the nations. I just want you to understand when we here at Preston City Bible Church say anti-Semitism, we don't mean disagreement with the policies of any Israeli statesman or any Israeli governmental decisions or any of the Israeli state stuff. We don't mean that we are agreeing or disagreeing. That's not what we mean by anti-Semitism. And being pro-Israel doesn't mean that you agree with all of their policies. It's very important to understand this. We don't agree with unbelief. We don't believe in uh, communism or the, the horrible leftism that, that obtains still in the Israeli state. We don't believe in a lot of the misunderstandings and misapprehensions of various Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is the satanic conspiracy to destroy all of the Jews and remove them from the, from the earth. You see, God has an eternal promise for an eternal people, and if Satan can stop it, that, that will cancel. And it seems that that's part of the agenda. And again, I would just, anti-Semitism is, is Revelation 12. It's the, it's, it's the Revelation 12 effort of Satan through various agencies to destroy Israel. And when we say it that way, when I say it that way, it, to me it becomes very clear about the misinformation and the political uh, hand-wringing. Listen around today. As credence is given to Hamas, credence is given to the Palestinian Authority, credence is given to all those people who just want to kill all the Jews. The more it's said that, that, that you know, well, those people, we just need to hear them and give them a chance to, to get their message out. That is their message. Their message is, is the eradication of the Jews. And, um, and I've heard a lot of misinformation, for example, that various outlets saying we need to, uh, to defend Israel and, and, and stop this anti-Semitism, they'll say, well, that's calling for genocide against the Palestinians. Uh, 
I'm not hearing um, genocide against the Palestinians so much. I'm not hearing that in popular discourse. I'm hearing the complete removal of Hamas. I'm hearing kill all Hamas, which is a, a terrorist organization that has said their only stated goal is to kill all the Jews. So um, anyway, I just, I, it's, this is, a, this is a, a, a hot and button topic in the time in which we live. And I've seen one person already be compromised by an anti-Semitic argument because they were told by an anti-Semite that, um, that we don't have to protect Israel. But see, there is an international conspiracy, and you can see it in all the nations surrounding Israel, to destroy all the Jews. Now, whether I act or not, listen, whether I act in support of these people's right to live or not, God is going to preserve them. But just like prayer, I pray in accordance with God's revealed will. I vote in accordance with God's revealed will. I do what I do based on what God has said, and I trust him, and I consider this a really important um, uh, way to parse through things. Now, when, when people bring to you the, um, the missteps of the Israeli state or the, or the, the, the various uh, wicked actors who happen to be Jewish, of Jewish descent, like, for example, Karl Marx, when, when that stuff is brought up, that's a different topic than the right of these genetic people to exist which is really the heart of the problem, in, in my opinion, of anti-Semitism. I just wanted you to understand this. There is a future glory and restoration of Israel. Listen to, the, um, to the, just verses 18 through 26 as we close down tonight. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How happy are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabitant of Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Wherever you turn, to the right or to the left, you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images overlaid with gold you will scatter them as an impure thing i wonder if you can guess what that word is for the impure thing that's called a euphemism when we say that it's the same thing that our righteous deeds are in isaiah and say to them be gone then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from uh, the yield of the ground It'll be rich and plenteous, and that day your livestock will graze in roomy pasture. Also the ox and the donkeys, which work the ground, will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. I want you to hear, when you switch over from verse 24 to verse 25, all of a sudden we're going from peace in the land to warfare but it's warfare God brings against the enemies of national Israel. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter. And the light of seven days on the day of the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he's inflicted. My interpretation of those words about Israel at peace in the land and faith, I don't think this has happened yet. There was a Hezekiah recovery, but it was short-lived. Did you know the story of Hezekiah, the king in the line of David and Judah? Hezekiah came down with the cancer. 
It was apparently a cancer that he got, some sort of skin cancer, active, aggressive skin cancer. And he was given an oracle from the Lord that he was going to die from it. And he cried out and wept to the Lord. And God said, I have heard your cry. And okay, I'm going to give you 15 more years. It was going to kill him, but he got 15 more years to live. And that's an interesting arrangement that happens. But you have to read the story kind of for the big picture. Because in that 15 years that Hezekiah lived, a couple of really important things happened. One was uh, he had a son named Manasseh. This was really bad news for the nation. Really bad news. It would have been better for somebody that wasn't related to become the king, um, like, an, like, a, like a, a nephew or something, or somebody else in the line of David. A lot of heirs to David back then. But, um, but no, it, it became Manasseh, and he was one of the worst kings in Judah. And he um, taught the people to commit child sacrifice. Um, and um, that was in that 15 years that Hezekiah got longer to live. Sometimes it's better to, to go see the Lord than to bring Manasseh onto the world. And I'm not saying that's what the text means. I'm just saying it's unfortunate that we got Manasseh. Another thing that happens is he shows the Babylonians all of his treasuries. And the prophecy from Isaiah is, well, you've shown them the treasuries. The Babylonians are going to come get all that. But it's going to be in the future, in your kid's day. So, oh, good. At least it won't be in my time. Hezekiah was not the greatest. Um, he wasn't the sharpest leader. He wasn't the most, um, uh, what do they call it, transformational leader or whatever. But, um, but that's, that's the story of Hezekiah. And so seeing him as the great restoration that we're reading in this chapter, where God has this ultimate binding of the wounds, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's looking way down the road over our heads at what's coming in the future for a national restoration of Israel, and they're going to be at peace in the land. As we, as we really do close, I want to remind you of the, the awesome eternal promises and prophecies God has for national Israel and how that affects the nations, for example, in Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 is one of the coolest passages in all the Bible. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. That's all the Gentile nations will come to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Mountain generally being used in prophetic scripture, especially in places like Daniel 2, as, uh, as a kingdom. And so it's, this is a description of the coming Israelite kingdom over the nations. See, all the nations are going to stream to this Jewish uh, mountain. It's Zion he's going to talk about. And the peoples, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, it's really important. It's not just a generic uh, reference to God. It's a reference to God and his national connection to Israel when he says, Jacob, that he, God, the God of Jacob, may teach us concerning his ways and we may walk in his paths. For the law, their instruction, will go forth from Zion, that's Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, will render decisions for many peoples, and they'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, never again will they learn war. And then in the time in which Isaiah wrote, he says, now, you rebels, you Isaiah chapters 1 through 12 fools, basically he doesn't call them fools, but they're being fools, Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you've abandoned, Lord, you've abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they're filled with influences from the east and so forth. So he goes into a diatribe against them after that beautiful prophecy of Israel over the nations. Listen to it. The king rules on a throne in Jerusalem. That's what the kingdom is going to be like. And all the nations are going to stream with their tribute to worship that king 
like the Gentiles, apparently, the Magi came to bow down before the Jewish king, the one-born king of the Jews. That's a picture of what's going to happen. The nations are going to be streaming into Jerusalem to worship Jesus, the king of this coming kingdom. And Isaiah is Christological. He's talking about Jesus when he says Yahweh is going to be teaching people the word from Jerusalem. That's what this is going to be like. And it's glorious. And it's national Israel with their king, the Jewish Messiah, ruling over national Israel. And that sets the agenda and tone for all of the nations that are coming to get the riches of God's word and God's instruction from the source. That's the glorious destiny of the kingdom. That's the glorious destiny of all the nations, including the, the future for national Israel. And I don't know how to parse the political scenarios that we're seeing. I see the more I listen to people that think they've figured it out, the more I think they don't know as much as they think they know. And it's really tough. I'm a benefit of doubt person. We, we better be really skeptical about a, a lot of things that are being served up to us but here's one thing I know. Satan wants to kill all the Jews. And we, believers in Christ, see a future for national Israel, and we definitely pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And you know what else we pray for? We pray, like Romans 9 through 11 describes, we pray for these people that are rejecting their Messiah, that they could come to know Jesus, their Savior. We pray that our witness in their lives will make them jealous because we have a relationship with the Jewish Messiah, and they don't, but they could. Father, we thank you for this eternal life we've shared tonight to think about your policies, your provisions, the prophetic nature of future Israel, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the refuge we can take in you any moment, every moment, because of your promises. Father, we know that you are going to stabilize us when we uh, recourse to your care, to your refuge. We also know that you're going to develop us and challenge us um, through various testings in life. And as we trust you, it's going to manifest proven character and continue to develop us. And we know that's part of your agenda. And we, Father, we don't want to go to the gym so much. We don't want to put our faith to the test. We don't want to, um, to climb the hill, but we know that we must. And we really want the outcome of it. So help us have the attitude that looks for your uh, provision through the struggle, through the challenge. We need you to strengthen us for what you know lies ahead of us. And we ask for your word to continue to Fill us, that your spirit would fill us with your word, not only when we study, but when we need to bring it to bear. We need to say the words of life to those around us. We need to bring compassion when we need to love as you love and, um, and think through the challenges before us. We ask you to strengthen us for it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.